We're going to continue to move through the book of Titus, and we are in chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to be looking at this idea of grace and godliness as it relates to our interaction with the world. We uh, put a graphic up on the screen to show that grace is the uh, trunk of the tree, and there's three areas where our godliness is going to permeate. They're kind of the branches off the trunk of grace, and they're going to be in the church, the home, and the world. So I tried to just kind of give you that image that you could always remember. Grace is what saves us. Godliness springs from grace in three main areas, the church, the home, and the world. That's where we're supposed to live out our faith. So chapter 3 is really about our faith in the world. And what I'd like to do is, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Um, We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of Titus 3. Titus 3, verse 1. While you just kind of get situated, let me pray. Father, thank you for every precious soul that is here. I heard something profound that was shared by Ravi Zacharias this morning as he was reading C.S. Lewis. And Lewis said, you don't just have a soul. You are a soul. What you have is a body. And Lord, we're thinking about Jim Gromus this afternoon as we will celebrate his homegoing and knowing how he struggled in his body like so many, Lord. And just to know... um, how precious our souls are to you. And that what you endured for us, we're just so humbled and grateful. And as we look at this subject of grace and godliness and our impact of the world, I can't help but think of what Corey just shared and how we go out into the world. And, you know, Jesus, you prayed that the world may know through the church. And so it's our prayer that you would just do what you want to do, Lord, in our hearts this morning. Speak to us, your servants are listening. We pray for your glory and your honor in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word and write it on our hearts. You may be seated. So today in verses 4 through 7 of Titus 3, we probably have one of the most tremendous salvation statements in all of Scripture. It's a more, you could say, a more detailed uh, description of salvation than even John 3.16, although John 3.16 is the golden text. 
But it is uh, what many scholars believe is an early church hymn. Often when you see uh, the wording like, this is a trustworthy statement, there are many scholars that believe that this was an early oral tradition or a creed that was uh, around in the church and maybe even used at baptisms uh, and uh, memorized or catechized in the hearts of the people of God. It was something to remember, something to really put into your heart and know who you are in Christ. Speaking of salvation, um, we have an incredible story from now over 100 years ago when the Titanic sunk. And some of you uh, have heard stories about passengers on the Titanic and you've heard, you know, uh, some of the drama and seen movies about it and maybe even documentaries. But there's a story, and some of you have heard this story, about maybe a little-known passenger to many. His name was John Harper. John Harper was actually headed to Moody uh, Church, where D.L. Moody had founded this historic church, and uh, he was going to go there to preach. And he had boarded the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. And uh, he, he was going to end up at this church, and really the church was interested in making them his pastor, their pastor. And uh, he had a great reputation for uh, pastoring churches. He had pastored two other churches in England. He was known as a faithful and fiery preacher who would speak to uh, you know, vast audiences and, and had great command by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was even said of John Harper that if he was being uh, ridiculed from the crowd, he could deal with that really well as well. Well, he got on, on the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. He was a, he was a widower. And, uh, of course, you know the story of the Titanic. The Titanic hit an iceberg, and uh, what they touted as the unsinkable ship began to sink in the icy waters. And as people were scrambling and trying to figure out what to do and enter into lifeboats, the stories that were shared about John Harper was that he began to preach to people after he made sure his six-year-old daughter was safe. He got her on a lifeboat. And they said because he was a single father and there was no mom, they would have let him on a lifeboat. But he said, no, I'm not going to go on a lifeboat. And he began to preach to people. And he was just simply preaching this message. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he was going up to people and one man kind of rebuked him and ridiculed him and said, I don't want to hear that. And Harper took his life vest off and gave it to the man and said, you need this more than I do. And he was yelling and he was saying, women and children and the unsaved, get on the lifeboats. And he had a real passion for God. And I want to ask you a question. If you were facing the icy waters and you were facing your own death, would preaching the gospel message be your priority or getting into a lifeboat? Which would you choose? You know, when life really comes down to what you really believe, these are the moments that, you know, really reveal if you believe what you say you believe. I wanted you to see a picture of John Harper because he was a real man with a real daughter. This is a picture of him. Let's go to the next one. And he was the true hero on the Titanic. And you know, he let a little six-year-old girl go that he loved very deeply because his priority was to preach the kingdom of God and to make sure that people were saved. I wonder what you and I would do in those kinds of situations. They had a, a survivor's meeting about four years after the sinking of the Titanic, and there was a man that stood up, and he was in Ontario, Canada at this meeting. 
And he said, uh, John Harper swam up to me on two different occasions in the icy waters dealing with hypothermia as we held on to wreckage and he would swim from person to person. He was in the water still preaching the gospel. And he was saying to people, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And one, one man said, the first time he swam up to me, he said, I, I wouldn't do it. And he said, he swam back to me a second time fighting the icy waters and hypothermia. And he said, are you saved yet, brother? <laughs> and the man said the second time, realizing he had miles of icy water and was facing his own death, he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and he said that John Harper eventually succumbed to the frigid waters. And then a lifeboat came by and rescued him and he said, I am John Harper's last convert. If you go to just show a few more of the pictures, this is a reminder of you know what happened that day as that boat went down. We just go ahead and scroll Jim through the rest of them. It was a very frightening time, a very challenging time, but there was a hero on board that day. He doesn't get a lot of press in the world, but I'll tell you what, I don't know how many people got saved that day because of John Harper, but John Harper uh, really lived out what he said he believed. This particular chapter is a chapter about living out what we say we believe as well. Paul's been telling us as a church that we adorn the doctrine of God. We actually wear the gospel. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. We are to put on the armor of God, piece by piece. And as we do, we'll reflect the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom and his name is Jesus. We're to live out what we might call, since clothing is the metaphor here, salvation style. <laughs> we all appreciate style, right? We all, we all, you know, a lot of us like to shop for clothes and that kind of thing. We, maybe we like to pick out a nice tie or a nice shirt. But when we go out, uh, and we only have today, right, we are to clothe ourselves in such a way that the world may know. This is what Jesus prayed in John 17. A couple of different times he prayed for their love and he prayed that the disciples would be unified that the world may know. The world does watch the Christian church. The world even knows our songs. It knows amazing grace and I can only imagine and it touches their hearts. But as they look at the church, the question is, what are we doing in terms of permeating the world in our behavior? Of course, the believers on this particular island, remember I was telling you about the Cretans, and uh, I told you that there was an old song, Mamas, don't let, your Cretan, don't let your babies grow up to be Cretans, right? You remember that? That actually wasn't the song, but anyway. But the, the island had a pretty bad reputation, you know, and, and these believers had to make a difference on this island. We have to make a difference on the island of the IE. Are we on an island? Is the Inland Empire an island? No, I don't think it is, but anyway. Sometimes it's an island if you're on the 91, right? <laughs> and so the question is, what are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our time? What is God doing through you and me? I hope your Christianity is not just about driving to church and spending an hour and a half here. I hope it's much deeper than that. Or if it's just that right now, I pray that you're thinking about deeper things and how God can use you wherever he has placed you. And so godliness is a God-centered or God-dominated life, and that applies to the church, the home, and the world. And it also applies with how we interact even with government officials. 
You look at Titus 3.1, it says, Remind them, that is the believers, that are um, not to disregard you, end of chapter 2, remind them to be subject to rulers. Have you found that probably a lot of your Christian life and a lot of teaching that you listen to is really just reminders? You know, uh, the, the job of a pastor, when it's all boiled down, is just to be a good reminder. <laughs> like when I speak to you guys week in and week out and I talk to you on Sunday mornings, a lot of the truths that I share with you, you already know. I'm in the reminding ministry. I'm, I'm almost like a mama, you know? Did you get, did you pack this? Did you take that? How many of you are grateful for moms and wives who are always prepared? My wife I don't know how she pulls certain things out of her purse. Oh, I've, I've got one of those. How do you have a sewing kit? <laughs> right? And she will often remind me. I'd like to tell you I have a great track record when my wife reminds me. Did you do this? Did you do that? Oh. Anyway. Paul says, I want to remind you. I want to remind you what you should be doing. A bad memory, says John Stott, was one of the main reasons for Israel's downfall. They forgot over and over and over again. Just take a peek at Psalm 106. Turn over to Psalm 106. The Psalms are great to comfort our souls and also to challenge our walks. We're supposed to learn from the mistakes of Israel, Psalm 106. And this Psalm recounts God's faithfulness, but their blunders. Psalm 106, look at verse 7. They're a lot like us. It says, Our fathers, Psalm 106, 7, in Egypt did not understand thy wonders. They did not, Psalm 106, 7, remember thine abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, Psalm 106, verse 8, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. And so he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them, verse 10, from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. We all remember the song of Moses, Exodus 15. But notice, just like us, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Later in these Psalms, it says they pained, if you go back to Titus, they pained the Holy One of Israel. And again and again and again, he would come through for them. And again and again and again, they would forget him. And they would move on to other things. And it's very easy for us in a world and in a country where we have so much at our fingertips to forget God because often we don't have to depend on God you know, the ancients didn't have sprinklers. I was just thinking about this. We've gotten a lot of rain in Southern California. But to pray for rain was a huge thing. Life and death issues were at stake, and they couldn't just turn on sprinklers in the morning. Rain had to come. But we have so much available to us, so much at our beck and call. We tend to forget God, and we need to be reminded that we can't forget Him and all that He's done for us. Paul even said to Timothy, 
I remember the faith that you have in your family and I remind you, 2 Timothy 1.6, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I remind you, fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. Stir it up. Sometimes we've got to just come to church to get stirred up again, to face another week and hopefully live another week victoriously. Amen? Amen. And so here we are together and Paul says, I want you to remind them. We're in the reminding ministry. Maybe some of you are good in the reminding ministry. We need to be. Remind them to be subject, Titus 3.1, to rulers. That word subject is hupatasso. It means to fall in line to rulers and to authorities, to, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. If you take verse 2 with verse 1, the subject is rulers and authorities, and we're to malign no one. Uh, it seems to me that the maligning of political leaders especially has become really a, uh, it's become a hobby for Americans now. It's an American pastime, frankly, to ridicule and mock and malign rulers. Uh, we were asked a question on the Bible Answer Show and I made a confession on the air, so I'll say it here. I've probably done more time Complaining about political rulers than I have praying. I'll just make a confession. Maybe you can relate to this. I've done more complaining than I've done praying for political leaders. Whether or not I'm on the same page with them or not, um, we are supposed to be praying. First Timothy 2 says we're to pray for all who are in authority. We're to pray. We're to live a quiet and tranquil life. But look, we, we realize that we get frustrated and I'm not saying that we cannot be those who critique and those who speak truth. But when our uh, positions start to move into maligning, and look, the people on the island of Crete had reason to malign their rulers. The island was so debauched, it had such a terrible reputation. It had to be hard to be a Christian on the island of Crete. There was so much sin, so much nastiness, so much war, so much rebellion that it had to be hard. And sometimes when you spoke to people or maybe even had an audience with a political leader, if you got shot down and you weren't getting warm fuzzies from people that you were praying for, look, it's hard. Sometimes you try to share with somebody and, and they mock your Christianity. And I, I don't know, my fallback, I'd like to say every time my fallback is just to pray and give the blessing instead. But look, this is why we need reminders. <laughs> because my flesh wants to do just the opposite. The Bible says we need to pray and obey leaders because there's no authority that's not from God. Now, the authority of the government is to promote good and stem the tide of evil. And the Christian church has always been a salt and light influence and a change agent in the culture, and we should continue to be so. But we are going to lose credibility. Please hear what I'm saying. We are going to lose credibility and not even get an audience if we don't handle ourselves properly. Look, the world knows a whole lot about backbiting and infighting and cutthroat stuff. They live in it every single day, folks. They live in a world where in corporate America or even people who are addicted to you know, unspeakable things, they'll, they'll cut somebody's throat to get ahead. 
And the church is to be different. The church is to say, no, look, we love each other. And that's why Jesus said, I want you to be unified. That's why Paul said we need to, we need to endeavor to retain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because the world is watching and they're wondering, is there something different? Notice the sweeping statements. We are to malign verse 2. What's your Bible say? No one. Always looking for loopholes, but I don't see any here. Can I malign just a few people that deserve it? The word malign, by the way, means to speak evil of, and it has the idea of slander. Again, Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, and he spoke truth to Pilate. There's nothing wrong with speaking truth and speaking truth in love, but there's a difference when you, when you move to slander. When your intent is to ruin somebody's name, whether it's in the halls of your home or somewhere else in the community or wherever you may be talking, we have to be careful of what we say and even how we say it. We need to be ready for every good deed. That's verse 1. We need to be obedient. And maybe, you know, before a word leaves our tongue, we need to think a little bit more and pray a little bit more. You know, it would be one thing if I could just stop here and say that, you know, the, the text should be just dealt with in the context of political rulers, but really it says to malign no one. And I'll tell you what, the idea of maligning and slandering somebody's name is a lot wider than just political leaders. You know, sadly, there's a lot of time spent with this little thing that James said is a powerful instrument. It's called the tongue. And it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we praise our God and Father. And with it, huh, we can tear down people really well. And the Bible tells us, look, if we're going to make a difference in this world, we can't be people who are sitting here slandering others. We can't be running them down or even murdering people with our words, ruining their name. This is the call of the church, and I know it probably causes us, all of us, hopefully, to do a little reflecting on how we handle ourselves. We're to malign no one. We're to be uncontentious, verse 2. The New King James says peaceable. The NIV says the same. The ESV says we're to avoid quarreling. Boy, if we could get this one together, we'd be doing pretty well, huh? Some of you parents just say, I would just like the backseat of my car to find fulfillment in Titus 3, 2. Stop fighting! <laughs> We are to show, we're to be gentle. Look at middle of verse 2. These are things that we ought to be doing on the positive side. We, negative side, don't malign. Don't be contentious. Positive. The word gentle there. And we are to show every consideration. The ESV has a nice rendering of this. It, show, it says to show perfect courtesy. The NIV renders it show true humility for all men. We know that gentleness uh, is a word that's, that often has the idea of meekness, which is simply power under control. That's what Jesus was. He had all the power. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have destroyed the landscape from the cross if he wanted to, but he kept the power, what, under control. That's, that's the idea of gentleness. Perfect courtesy. Let me ask you a question. How many courteous people have you met in the last year? 
where you're blown away by their courtesy. Courtesy and respect for authority. Just, just take the two principles we're teaching right now. Respect for authority. Look, if, if we lose respect for authority in the world, you know, and, and that is happening right now, and I suppose every, every generation could say that the younger generation maybe has lost some respect. But respect for authority is kind of the big picture here. And courtesy is another big picture. How about, you know what? How about we just hold the door open for somebody? Or maybe when someone walks in the room who's elderly or a woman, wouldn't it shock you ladies if we stood up when you entered a room? We, you might think there was a rat on the floor or something. Why are, they, why are they all standing up? What's going on around here? But these, these things that we do, respect and courtesy, often give us a platform to the, for the gospel. They help us adorn the gospel. In other words, if you are courteous to someone, they might wonder, what, what makes this person tick? Why do they have such respect for authority? Why, do they, why are they so different? And then you might say, well, here's why I'm different. Because I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's changed my life. And so this is, these are the, the things that the Christian church should be doing. You say, well, it's hard, Pastor Michael. Sometimes when... It's in, it might be in my heart to do it, but then out of my mouth comes something different. <laughs> you, ever, you ever find yourself in a pattern where you might have a blowout with somebody or you might handle a situation very poorly and you say to yourself after it's done, and you may even apologize, all right, next time, I'm going to handle that one different. And then it happens again and you do the exact same thing. And you say, oh... Wicked man that I am. Sinful man. Who will save me from the body of this death? Why should I act that way? You might ask that as a Christian. Why, why not just repay evil for evil, insult for insult? Especially on the 91. I mean, doesn't it seem justified? <laughs> Have you ever had a day when you're driving and you're a little early that day, and everybody behind you seems to be this crazy person on your tail. Like, and then have you ever changed positions with them? You can't realize why everybody's driving so slow when you need to be somewhere. I believe that other drivers should be able to read my mind. Do you not? Don't you think with the modern advancements that we have today that that little voice in the car could say, the driver behind you is very angry right now. <laughs> Move your car 15 feet to the right to avoid any further trouble. That would be an invention. Maybe some of you should work on that. Here's the reason. We also, verse 3, we also were once what? We were foolish. The Greek word here is anatos, and it has the idea of once at one time we didn't get it either. We just didn't get it. We ourselves were foolish. You know, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart what? There is no God. That, that seems to be in Psalm 14.1, by the way, a mantra. There is no God, therefore I can do what I want. If you read the, the next few verses in Psalm 14, this is not a person that is like making a scientific statement. This is a person who says, if I can say there's no God, then I can do what I want. If I suppress the truth in unrighteousness 
and push it away, then I can live how I want. Do you know some of the most famous people that were close to Darwin said that very thing? They said, look, the evidence is not overwhelming for evolutionary theory. In fact, there is none. (laughs) However, the only other option we have is a creator, and that messes with my lifestyle. So the fool says there's no God because maybe he hasn't investigated the evidence or maybe he's experienced a disappointment by watching another Christian or there could be a whole myriad of things. But look, you, if you're a Christian this morning, you were once foolish too. Should we go back and look at, you know, sometimes when we've been Christians for decades, we forget how we were. We have to be reminded sometimes because we were in the same boat. And by the way, to go with the boat analogy, think of the Titanic. We were in a sinking boat We were on board, foolish, in the same boat. We didn't know any better. How many truths have transformed your life since you became a Christian? How many things have you read or heard about in Scripture where you went, oh, ooh, well, I I wasn't doing that. Or I thought the opposite of that. Well, we were once foolish. We were once disobedient. Look at this. This is an ugly list. We were deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Those are two ugly twins, malice and envy. Hateful and hating one another. Wow. That was us. Malice is wishing people evil while envy is resenting and coveting their good. Let me say that one more time. Malice is wishing people evil while envy is resenting and coveting their good. They don't deserve it. Malice and envy. Hate and hatred. Do you know that there's a lot of people, they will spend their life doing this stuff and they will go to their grave in hatred. And that is a sad life to live. And that's, when you run into somebody... Maybe the emotion, instead of taking everything personally, needs to shift to, you know what, they don't know any better. They don't know the Lord. They haven't experienced His love and kindness. They're a life without grace. We had a, when we went through the book of Philippians, we were confronted with these words, and I'll tell you what, let's go there because this is important. Philippians chapter 2, just a few pages back in your New Testament. Go to Philippians 2, look at verse 12. Paul's been talking about the incredible incarnation of Christ and that he paid our ransom price and he's been exalted to this high place. In light of all that he's done for us, it says, so then, Philippians 2.12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we're not to work for our salvation, Philippians 2.12. We're to work it out. God gives us salvation, but we're to work out that salvation in our everyday living. God's at work in us. We're to do how many things? Philippians 2.14. This is what we affectionately call on the golf course P2.14. So that if we start grumbling and complaining on the golf course, and if there's ever a place to grumble and complain, it's the golf course, especially if you have a game like mine. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, in the midst of, think of the Cretan island or think of anywhere, 
of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, when you don't behave with malice and envy, when you don't quarrel about everything, when you show perfect courtesy and consideration, the world goes, what in the world? Where does that come from? Why does he behave that way or she behave that way? Back to Titus 3. And you begin to adorn the gospel. You begin to show people who Jesus is. Look, we're all in the sinking boat. We all lived in ignorance and unbelief. Paul even said that's what he did. He was shown mercy even though he was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. He said, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and I was in unbelief. Christians are called to live a life of love. Look at verse 4. This is, this is now that, what scholars believe is that creedal statement, Titus 3, verse 4. But it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. We talked about the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in Titus 2.11, first and second coming. Titus 2.11, first coming. Titus 2.13, second coming. When that kindness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ is our God and Savior, Titus 2.13, and His love for mankind appeared. See His love for mankind there? That's the Greek word philanthropia. That's where we get philanthropic or a philanthropist. When God's kindness showed up and His love for mankind, here is a sweeping statement. It's a great statement. God loves humanity. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him. God demonstrated his love for us, us, Romans 5, 8, in this, that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn his love. His love for mankind is amazing and it showed up. It, it became uh, physical or in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O oh Lord. It's his kindness. You see, he is a God full of loving kindness. The psalmist says, your loving kindness, your hesed, your loyal love is better than life. There is no savior but God. And he saved us. I want you to think of that Titanic ship He saved us, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds, even though we should be zealous for good deeds, and that's been a push in this letter. He did not save us on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but what was it? According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He saved us. You cannot save yourself. Decades ago, Shirley MacLaine said, just look within. Don't do that. Don't look within. All you'll find is a deceitful heart that's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Look up. If you want to be saved, look up. Don't look within. D.L. Moody says, it was my sad lot to be in the Chicago fire. As the flames rolled down our streets, destroying everything in their onward march, I saw the great and the honorable, the learned and the wise, fleeing before the fire with the beggar and the thief and the harlot. All were alike. As the flames swept through the city, it was like judgment day. The mayor, nor the mighty men, nor the wise men could stop these flames. 
They were all on one level then. And many who were worth hundreds of thousands were left paupers on that night. When the day of judgment comes, there will be no difference. When the deluge came, there was no difference. Noah's ark was worth more than all the world. The day before, it was the world's laughing stock. And if it had been put up to auction, you could not have gotten anybody to buy it except for firewood, says Moody. But the deluge came, and then it was worth more than all the world together. And when the day of judgment comes, Christ will be worth more than all this world, more than 10,000 worlds, close quote. You see, the world didn't understand. And Noah and his family got on the ark, and the flood came and swept them all away. But Jesus saves. You know, sometimes we, we maybe see people who are wearing those sandwich board, you know, placards, or they're holding a sign, Jesus saves, and we're like, what is that? Is that actually what the Bible teaches? Didn't Jesus just come to show us how to be good people and show isn't he just one way shower, one good prophet? Oh, no, 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 folks. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and from his own lips, and no one's coming to the Father except through him. You can either believe that or reject it, but there it is. Jesus saves. And he doesn't save us on the basis of good deeds. Paul wants to make sure that we know it was God's mercy that saved us. And that salvation uh, comes out in the work of the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 5. It's the washing of regeneration. Think about that word. Regenerate means really to make new. God doesn't want to just patch you up, by the way. He's not looking to just put a few band-aids on your trouble spots. He wants to make you brand new. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new has come. New things have come. We are new creations in Christ. You say, well, if I am new, why do I look the same in the mirror? (laughs) Because there's three tenses of salvation. What's already happened, you've been saved. What is happening to you now, God is breaking the power of sin. Here's, here's three Ps. God has dealt with the penalty of sin. If you're a note taker, write this down. This is very important. Three tenses of salvation. He has dealt with the penalty of sin. Jesus took that penalty at the cross. He's now dealing with the power of sin in your life, breaking the chains little by little, sanctification. So you have justification. The penalty has been paid in full by Christ. Sanctification, God's dealing with the power of sin in your life. And one day, he will eradicate the presence of sin because then there will be a new Jerusalem. Everything that was old will be passed. Behold, I make all things new, all things, not some. And the presence of sin will be gone. And we live in the in-between. And we've been regenerated and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit because God is rich in mercy and now we live through Jesus Christ. There are many reasons God saves you. This is a a neat little section from Max Lucado. He writes, There are many reasons God saves you. To bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. One of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. In fact, the Bible says he loves you. 
He thinks you are the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. And whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose to live in your heart. And the Christmas gift that he sent to you in Bethlehem, well, face it, friend, he's crazy about you. Amen? God loves you, my friend. He loves me. I don't always understand it. And sometimes I have even a hard time living in the reality of it, to be quite candid. But he loves me. You say, but but how could you really know that, Pastor Michael? Because he demonstrated his love. Would you all look on the wall? On a death instrument at the cross. That's how I know. If he didn't care about me, he wouldn't have entered into my pain. He wouldn't have entered into time and space. He wouldn't have taken that horrible beating and death at the cross. If he didn't love you, there would be no cross. He would have said, no, thank you. They're not worth it. Or I don't want to go through that. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of things that we might think are worth it, but we're not sure we want to go through it. Everybody with me? A lot of things that we fail to do when we know the right thing to do because we just are not sure that we're up for it. But we were washed. This speaks of an inner purification. Though it's pictured in baptism and the early church fathers apparently thought that this spoke of baptism, I think it's clear that this is the reality of an inner cleansing. God cleanses our heart. It's regeneration and renewal. There was a man who came to Jesus by night, John 3, and he said, teacher, good teacher, we know that uh, you must be from God. No one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, I tell you, you must be born, what? Again. And Nicodemus asked the natural physical question, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. I'm speaking to you about spiritual things, Nicodemus. You must have a new start. You must be born again. And here is the radical new beginning that Christians experience. You know, there's a pretty ugly list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, And it includes those who were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And it says they want to inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. God washed me in the blood of his son. Amen? Amen. I am now clean before the Father because of the finished work of the Son. And he poured out this blessing, verse 6, richly upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. The idea of pouring out is from Joel 2 and it has the language of the book of Acts. God pours forth his Spirit. He pours it out richly is the idea here. You might want to note that in the verses we've looked at, the whole Godhead is involved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They join forces in accomplishing the work of salvation. That being justified, verse 7, by His grace. That's how we are justified. The word there means to be declared righteous by His grace. We, we might be made heirs, and that's what we are now, 
according to the hope of eternal life. One of the most beautiful pictures of being an, a co-heir with Christ is adoption. And Corey, I don't think that we scheduled this day by accident. I know that's how God works, right? And one of the things that your ministry does is you go into places that are very ugly and you go in often undercover to try to rescue, especially young girls, but it could be women of, of any age, out of slavery. And you often have to pay a price, right? There's a, there's a ransom price to pay to deliver them out of the bondage. And once they're out of the bondage and they've experienced that freedom, you've told us the story. There's joy in rejoicing. It's the gospel. God bought us with the blood of his son, adopted us into his family, and has made us co-heirs with Christ. And he's going to give us, folks, this is amazing, everything. Some of you hear stuff like this and you say, wow, that... That, that's awesome, but but how many of you are yeah but yeah but people yeah but but yeah but uh. Pastor John likes to say that everything that comes after but is baloney. <laughs> I'll let you consider how true that is. <laughs> yeah, but really this. This is how much God loves me? Are you sure, Paul? Look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, Christian, I want you to speak. How? It doesn't say sheepishly. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Don't be ashamed of it. Speak confidently. Speak boldly. Look, what does the world have? There is no solution to the human dilemma without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're lost. The Titanic's going down, baby. And all there are are the frigid waters. And that's it. If there's no Jesus and no resurrection and no, no hope of a life to come, that's it. But Paul says, look, this is trustworthy. So you speak confidently, look at middle of eight, so that those who have believed God, and he comes full circle back to good works, may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good, and they are profitable for men and women. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, but it's also a word of hope, a word of encouragement. There are some who are here this morning and they've been battling all week just to get here. Some have been battling spiritual warfare. The enemy's been on the prowl. Some are hurting. Some are backslidden. And some don't know you. And you know every heart, Lord. There's no creature hidden from your sight. Everything is naked and open before the one that we must give an account. And Lord, if something was exposed today, if the phone is ringing in our lives, Lord, <laughs> perfect timing. Thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to answer. We know you're calling. We know you're constantly extending your hands, saying, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We know you're constantly sending out an invitation. Be saved. 
Grab the lifeline. Come on board. Come into the ark.